This is Books for Breakfast, a podcast where we talk about books and writing. I'm Enda Wiley. And I'm Peter Sir. And you're all very welcome to this morning's show. Good morning, everyone. And I'm really looking forward this morning to talking to Andrew Fitzsimons, whose translations, whose new translations of the Japanese poet Basho have just been published by the University of California Press. So I'm looking forward to that and I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but first of all, you might have noticed that it's been a while since our last podcast. We'd planned to be back a little bit earlier than now, but kind of events intervened, didn't they, Enda? Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? What? They did indeed. Yeah, well, events, I mean, I think as, you know, as we all know, life can intervene and things can happen that you don't expect. And on the 8th of January, I think that was the date, I just happened to be walking home towards our house and I tripped and fell. An ambulance was called and I did severe damage to my shoulder and wrist. So I am post-operation now. I'm on to my eighth week of recovery and I'm beginning to move slowly around. And I think it's great, Peter, that you've encouraged us to get to the breakfast table and start our podcast. But you actually, because, yeah, sure, but you actually, because, I mean, you did severe damage. You actually broke and dislocated your shoulder and you broke your your wrist as as well. So So it's kind of pretty serious stuff. Really? Yeah, I hope I'm getting lots of sympathy now from the listeners. And I also had the added agony of being sent home from A&E and I spent a week in severe pain, really, before I went back and was operated on. So it's been fun and games, hasn't it, Peter? It sure has. And let me ask you this. I mean, how does what does a writer do? What's a writer with a broken shoulder and a broken wrist? How do you manage Well, the lucky thing is I'm somebody when I'm teaching writing, I'm always saying have a notebook and a pen nearby. And I never do. I'm always writing on the backs of envelopes or, you know, leaving notes on my phone. But luckily, when I went into the hospital, I did have a little blue notebook with me. So I scribbled lots of things down. Actually, it's it's fun going back and looking at them. Many of the notes were scribbled in the darkness of the night um, when I couldn't sleep in the hospital. And just, I suppose, that the world seems more vivid when you can't actually enter it. So for the last few weeks, I've been, you know, basically in my bedroom looking out the window at the changing seasons and people going by and I think that in that kind of that strange space I think things do come to you and I, I think it is a great idea and not that I think it's a great idea to fall and break your shoulder but I think it's a great idea to take time out from normal life without having fallen and to just take uh, time to think and I think that's where writing comes from when you have space and time to imagine and to be free like that and hopefully not in pain, Peter, but... <laughs> and what about what about reading? I mean, have you found any solace in reading? For instance? And, what, and what have you been reading? Well, I suppose it's hard at the beginning to read, but then suddenly things start coming to you. Um, for instance, one of my favourite writers in the 80s was um, Hanif Qureshi. And I'm sure many of you heard that in December, just gone, he had a horrific fall in Rome. And I suppose for somebody like me who had just fallen, I, I completely connected with this. You know, he wrote My Beautiful Laundrette. He wrote The Bud of Suburbia. I, we, you and me love a film called Le Weekend, where Lindsay Duncan and Jim Broadbent are fantastic actors. They're ageing couples. They return to Paris to rekindle their romance. That's a Hanif Qureshi play as well, or a movie as well, which I loved. But anyway, he fell. And so he's been sending dispatches from his, his hospital in Rome. And I really connected with that. He said he just fell in Rome and he woke up minutes later in a pool of blood. His neck was grotesquely twisted. He's not sure if he'll ever be able to walk again. But actually, some of his dispatches are really funny. So I'll just read one to you, Peter, a little bit. He says, being a tetraplegic isn't all bad. 
As I write this, I'm having a pedicure while eating caviar with a plastic spoon. My girlfriend is tickling me under the chin. I've just proposed to her. Barkus is willing. While she pretends to contemplate the question, to my surprise and that of most of my friends who consider me to be less than a good catch, in fact, a bad catch, and had advised me against proposing while I'm in this condition, she eventually says, yes, of course, and laughs. And it goes on and on. And he he creates a whole world of where he is in the hospital and the people he knows and the pain he's going through. But he, he and he can be very honest and open. So I, I do would recommend that for people. Hanif Qureshi's dispatches and you can sign up for them and they come. He, like, for instance, in this one, he's, he's very funny at the end. He says, I'm feeling highly sartorial today. I'm wearing my new white Snoopy socks, my black Uniqlo sports pants. On top, I have a long sleeve Picasso T-shirt and over that an off-white Gap hoodie. So he's, he's he remains funny and cheerful and witty and uh, I saw recently he was asking did anyone remember or did they, had they recommendations for memoirs about people who've been injured or hurt and people are coming up with people like Joan Didion or The Butterfly and The Bell and books like that but it, it's just I feel connected I suppose with people who have been injured in some way and I've been kind of diving into books like that also I think poetry when I'm encountering poetry you're asking me was I reading I seem drawn at the moment to poems about bodily parts so I was in conversation with James Harper the poet who's the new poetry fellow down in, in Trinity so congratulations to James but we we were talking about this poem Hands by Moya Cannon and uh, the, there's it's a beautiful poem. She's flying home to Ireland and she's flying over the eastern coast of Brazil and she's thinking about hands. And I suppose this poem connected with me because I was thinking of my own injury, my own operation and the surgeon. And she just said, and I think of other hands which can hold lives, the hands of the surgeon whom I will meet again when I return home, the hands of the black haired nurse who unwound the birth cord from my neck the soft hands of my mother, the hands of those others who have loved me, until it seems almost as though this is what a human life is, to be passed from hand to hand, to be borne up improbably over an ocean. And that's from her collection Hands. It was published in 2011 by Carcanet Press. And for somebody like me who cannot use my hand at the moment because my wrist is broken, I think that's a really beautiful poem to read and it gives me hope. Thanks for reading that poem. And at least one good thing, at least, is that the, the vo- your voice is still working. So I'm looking forward to uh, maybe doing more podcasts if we, if, we, if we can manage. Yeah, that's true. My voice is definitely working and I'm very much looking forward to hearing Andy Fitzsimons or Andrew Fitzsimons, as he's formerly known, talking about Basho. And here he is. Were my voice better? I'd recite the poem of The Blossoms Falling. I found I came to like him a lot. The more I got to know him, the more I liked him. I like the way he sounds, of course, as a poet, but I also liked him as a human being. The compassion he shows for the less fortunate, the the loyalty to his friends, at, at some risk to himself. Basho was political in, 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 in a way that we don't appreciate that he, when he writes about the lost voices of history in some of those travelogues, travel journals, we tend to glide over them and not, not see them as making a point about the contemporary political situation in Japan, the Tokugawa regime he lived under. You know, He, he often makes strategies. One of the things I say in the introduction, that he, 
He, there are deliberately enunciated silences in Basho, often, often reference to historical event is couched in a silence. He can I cannot, poetry is not equipped. Poetry can't deal with this, he says, you know. And he says, I, I'll, I, put, I put down my writing bush. This happens too often for it to be coincidence. It's often in the context of the Tokugawa regime itself. One, one, nine. Secretly in the night, in the moonlight, a weevil bores into a chestnut. 201. At the beginning of the ninth month, I went back home. The grass by my mother's room had withered in the frost, and everything had changed. The locks at the sides of my brothers' and sisters' heads were white, and there were wrinkles around their eyes. We are still alive, was all we could say. My older brother opened the relic pouch and said, Pay your respects to mother's white hair. Like Urashima Taro with his jewel box, your brow has aged. For a little while, we wept. If held in my hands, it would melt from the hot touch of teardrops, the frost of autumn. 278. Cold night. A water jar cracks in the ice of the nighttime, in bed, awoken. 519. A cooling freshness I have made my dwelling place. Now all is Kushti. 262. An old patch of land, Nazuna a gathering, a clatter of men. Matsuo Basho, born 1644, died 1694, is, many would say, the greatest figure in the history of Japanese literature, an acknowledged master of the haiku. Basho, the complete haiku of Matsuo Basho, translated, annotated, and with an introduction by Andrew Fitzsimons, offers in English a full picture of Basho's haiku, amounting to more than 900 in all. This translation is remarkable too in that it's the first to stick strictly to the form of the originals. All of the poems maintain the exact syllable count of the originals and that's something we might we might come back to. Also remarkable is the way that we get to appreciate that in addition to being a poet of the natural world and if you like a particular Japanese sensibility, Basho is also a poet of queer love and eroticism. He's a poet of the city as well as of mountain streams. And just to give a sense of how this landmark book has been received. I'll just give you a sense. I should say it's, it's, it's published by the University of California Press. A uniquely wonderful anthology. Before the light emitted by each phrase of each poem in Japanese disappears, Andrew Fitzsimons carries it across into English. An extraordinary achievement. A breath of fresh air in the middle of a chaotic world. Fitzsimons has done a beautiful job showing the uniqueness, drama and playfulness of Basho's originals. This complete set of Basho's haiku makes the poet's work in the context of his life understandable as it has never been before in English. This book marks a moment of huge significance in world poetry. And that was Bernard Donoghue, poet himself and professor in the University of, of Oxford. Joining us from Tokyo this morning is Andrew Fitzsimons, Professor of English Language and Cultures at Gakushui University, Tokyo, and author of The Sea of Disappointment, Thomas Kinsella's Pursuit of the Real, as well as three books of poetry and indeed translations of 20th century Italian poetry. So welcome, Andy, and congratulations on your new translations of Basho. I mean, this is a long time labour of love. I mean, how long, just 
kind of to kick off with. How long have you been working on Thank this? Thank you, Peter. Thank you for that lovely introduction and good morning. Um, I, I think I began in earnest in 2017. So, you know, five, six years, I suppose, um, in total. But of course, I've been translating bits and pieces over the years, but with full commitment since July 2017. And I'll come. Back, I'll come back to the kind of nature of the of the, of the translations and and that and how yours are, are maybe different from other people's. And but let me begin with just a really basic question. I mean, who who exactly was the man that we know as as Basho? He he was born in in a place called Iga Ueno. The town is called Ueno, and the province is called Iga. And he was born into a. Some of the introductions you see in, in, in some of the books you see refer to him as a kind of lower-ranking samurai, but, but he, he wasn't really from a samurai family at all. He's from a, a family which had perhaps once been a samurai family, but who had lost their status in the warring states period uh, you know, of his grandfather, great-grandfather's generation. So that warring states period is familiar maybe from some of the, the Kurosawa films you, you, maybe seen like Ran and uh, Kagamusha, etc. So he was what's called a Musokonin, uh, or the pronunciation should be Musokonin, which is a farmer, basically a small farmer. Uh, so his father was a small farmer. He did have you know, a, some of the trappings of a samurai, which like a sword and, and a family name. So they, they But that was about the only thing uh, left of that. So he's a countryman from a province that was semi-isolated, surrounded by mountains, only 30 kilometers really from Kyoto, but in, in, in to all intents and purposes, a world away. And Iga had its own particular identity. And that carries through into his life when he moves to Edo, what is now known as Tokyo. He kept Iga connections. He uh, would come back to Iga uh, a lot, in his, in, particularly in his last 10 years. He uses Iga dialect in some of his poems. So the Iga's identity was was very strong, strongly part of what he what he what he felt himself to be. I think. And just again, as was part of that context again. I mean, what kind of place was the Japan of his lifetime? Well, it's important to remember that it was a military government. You know, it's the Tokugawa Bakufu. It's called in Japanese the military government, the shogunate, and. It, the Warring States period uh, ended in the early 17th century, around 1603. And between 1603 and 1867, we have what's called the Tokugawa Shogunate, or the, and it's also known as the Edo period. So Basho lived in the early part of the Edo, Edo period. And in the reign of the, I think it's the third or fourth Shogun, I think Tsunayoshi was the, the, the Tokugawa Shogun during his lifetime. It's around the same time, I suppose, as Andrew Marvell, Milton, around that time, you know, 1640, 1690. That's the the period we're talking about. It was a military government, so travel was was difficult. You had to pass border guards, etc. He writes about that in one of his poems, in quite a few of the poems, actually. It could be a dangerous place. Uh, It could be a politically uh, dangerous place to write things against the government, for example. So that's that's part of what I was trying trying to get across in in the translations was that Basho is also a political writer, but we need to, to keep our ears open for it because he often he often does it because of the nature of the regime he lived under. He does it in at, at an angle to the regime, so to speak. Five two two, hear the quietness entering into the rocks, cicada refrain. Forty one. 
As the clouds drift apart, for now, friend, we separate. Wild geese living, leave. 282. A man named Sora has made temporary residence near my hut, and we visit each other often. When I cook, he helps feed the fire. At night, when I make tea, he breaks ice for water. By nature, a man who likes quiet and solitude, he has become a dear friend. One evening, after a snowfall, he dropped by. Friend of mine, make the fire. I will show you something great. A snowball this big. Forty. A pair of deer rubbing hair up against hair, each other's hair. So hard to please. One, five, two. Ume and Willow, a lightsome young man, maybe, maybe a woman. He grows up, he, he starts writing, but what, what kind of poetry, for instance, was being written when Basho came into his own as, as a poet? What was the surrounding sort of literary landscape like? Basho must have shown, shown some sort of talent at this, uh, because he was taken under the wing of the local uh, clan, the local clan, uh, in particular, uh, uh, one of the members of that clan whose name was Sengin, Sengin. And he he took Basho under his wing. Basho became a retainer of that clan. And I think we think that the, the, the supposition is that Basho must have had some kind of talent in this form of poetry. And yet, I think it's fair to say that he was interested in subverting that sort of inherited poetic form. I mean, you say, for instance, that his subjects were unorthodox within the Haikai world. And I'm, I was wondering, like, what made them unorthodox? Well, one of the things to remember, of course, he, he was different within within the genre he worked, but, but, but the genre itself was a, a form of parody. It was a way of undermining pretension, for example. The Haikai form uh, was adopting and aping the forms of the nobility and the classical forms of classical verse, but by by twisting and certainly by taking a classical form and inserting uh, a word that would be inappropriate to that context, so it was a kind of already an irreverent form. Now, Basho was, took part in that, etc., and he demonstrated his difference, I suppose, and one of his great achievements is by taking a, a, a form that was considered light and making it serious and using it for serious ends. So I suppose one of the one of the ways we could think about it is the way I suppose uh, rock music or pop music became a form for for serious thoughts and and serious artists in the sixties. You know, uh, I suppose that would be a, an equivalent to what Basho Basho did. You quote um, one of his most celebrated poems: "On a leafless bough, the perching and pausing of a crow, the end of autumn." And and you say about this that. The poem can be read as an emblem of Basho's resolve to place poetry at the spiritual centre of his existence. And I wonder, could you say a bit about, about that? As I said, there was a, a huge increase in literacy in uh, Japan at this time, which led to a huge increase in the demand for what were called haikaishi, professional poets. Uh, so Basho became one of these. He moved after the death of his mentor, uh, Sengen, or his protector, I should say, in 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 uh, Iga, he moved to Edo to, to make a name for himself as a, as a poet, and he fulfilled all the professional duties of the haikaishi. He was a marker of poems. He was a, a tenja, and this was he did. He wasn't cut out for it. It was drudgery for him, you know. And he says once, you know, better better be a beggar than a tenja. 
And so when we when I said that about the putting poetry at the spiritual center, he, the poetry became much more serious and less of a game, to less of a career. And he started following rather than the, the some of the models he had been following, the Chinese models, for example, he started following figures like Saigyo and Sogi. Um, um, I'm much more um, inclined towards the serious than than his previous poems and his previous models. The the point at which he actually becomes Basho because he wasn't he wasn't born Basho, and and he moves to to Fukugawa and it becomes important for him and then he and and, and the name he kind of takes on the name at at that point isn't that right? Yeah, he had a number of names. Of course, his his birth name was Matsuko, was Matsuo Kinsaku. And he had a number of uh, names after that. Sobo was one of them. And then in, in Edo, he became Tose, which, which means green peach. And he became Basho. Basho is, is uh, it's the Musa Basho. It's a kind of banana tree, a plantain. Um, he became Basho because he received a gift from one of his followers, Rika. And he, the Basho was planted outside his, his hut in, in Fukugawa in Tokyo. And over time, uh, people just started referring to the, the place as the Basho An, the Basho Hut, and then as the, the, the resident of the hut as Basho himself. And he had given himself a different name, but, but people just started to know him as this, and he kind of liked it, and that's, that's what he, he became, Basho. And at a certain point, his hut burns, and you say interestingly that you said this was that was the beginning of my yeah. understanding of the mutability of human life, he says, and and homelessness becomes important, doesn't it? I mean that sense you describe his sense of homelessness and his feeling for displaced life and how this kind of drove his urge to to wander yes. and the journeys that took up so much of of, of his life in the last kind of ten years of his life. Uh, to become what he described himself as 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 a wayfaring man, and I, I wonder, is that how you describe him too? That is certainly in the last ten years of his life. That is certainly what he became. It wasn't always the case, but he always had the feeling for displaced life. He always had a feeling for the marginal, for for the the poor. In one of the first poems that he he wrote, he he, he uh, talks about an abandoned child, a sutego, an abandoned child. So. He has. There was always a sense that he was looking at the disregarded, the unregarded, uh, even in such things as the the climate, the weather that he describes in his poems. Shigure, the winter rain, the early winter rain, is very much uh, prominent in his work. So he's he's um, he has a feeling for the the un undernoticed or the unnoticed. And there's a huge degree of compassion, even early on. One of the things that, that's interesting and uh, that you point to is like, I mean, you talk about his travels, but you also point out he's not a solitary traveller in spite of the image that we might have of him. And you give a nice, you have a nice calculation that he never travelled more than 24K alone. And, you know, there's also, yeah. you also you talk about poetry being, in a way, a communal activity. I mean, the exact opposite of our experience yeah. in some ways, a yeah. Western kind of experience. You know, unless we think of the exceptional case of Wordsworth and Coleridge and so on working, you know, all those, uh, you know, the Lake poets kind of working together. Sure. But that kind of communality seems to be important. Yeah, yeah. And it's also important to remember that the poems in this, this, this we call them haiku now, they weren't called haiku by Basho. That is a, a term that only became current in the early 20th century through the work of a man called Masaoka Shiki. Uh, he 
Basha would have called them haku, and haku means the initiating poem in a verse sequence. And he would have written these because he was invited to various occasions where he was the master and he was the leader of the of the the, the renga sequence, you know. Um, I would be guiding them uh, through the through the 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 afternoon or evening or whatever of this this linked verse occasion, you know. So the the um, the haku because it was an, an occasion, because it was in a place. Uh, that's that's why we have one of these peculiar things that people wonder about the season word in in a haiku. It's because he was invited to a particular house on a particular day at a particular time, and one of the things he had to do was to mark that time, to mark that occasion. And the season, the season word, was one of the things you you included. Another thing you included was praise of the host, for example. So there's there are many poems in which they're they're ceremonial. They're they're praising the host. They're referring to some quality of the area, as well. You know, so there's a there's that um, aspect of the of the, the poems to remember. I suppose if, if people had to say, if or if you said to people, name one poem by Basho, they'd probably go for the one about the An Olden Pond Now song frog springs off into the sound of, of water. You say the single best known poem in, not just of Basho, but the single best known poem in Japanese literature, the significance of which was recognised almost as soon as it was written, you say. And I was just wondering, we're all very familiar with the poem in, in some ways, but in, 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 in a way that makes us perhaps take it for granted. But could you explain the significance of it? And actually, we might hear you read it first. Furuikeya, kawazu tobikomu, mizu no oto. An olden pond now, a song frog springs off into the sound of water. Important to remember, as well as the idea of this group activity, is there's there's a fictional element in it. And one of the things I wanted to get across in the in the, presenting the full picture of Bashu is that uh, one of the things that he wasn't was a Zen monk. He wasn't a Zen monk. So often the readings of this poem place it within the Zen context that this was an actual moment that there was an actual frog jumping into an actual frog. And Basho transcribed this moment um, as a kind of a, a spiritual event. But in fact, there was no pond, there was no frog. He had the first, uh, the, the second two lines first. Uh, we have Kawazu Tobikomu Mizunoto. Okay, so he had he had those lines, which is the the, the frog jumping into the sound of water. Okay, and he needed a, a first what's called a capping a capping line, and. At a session, it was suggested to him by a man called Kikaku that he put in uh, Yamabuki-ya, Yamabuki-ya, which is carrier roses. Now, there was a, uh, an association within Japanese literature of Yamabuki, carrier roses, and kawazu, these frogs, because this particular frog is not our gribbit gribbit frog. It's not the frog that makes that kind of sound. It's uh, a very musical frog that trills like an insect sound. And it's associated within the Japanese uh, literary tradition with the composition of poetry itself. And this association goes back to the 12th century to a man called Kino, Kino Tsurayuki and his preface called the Kana Preference, preface to the Kokin Wakashu. So there's a long association between this, this kawazu, this frog, and poetry itself. So it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of a meta frog and a or sorry meta frog and a meta pond kind of. <laughs> yeah. 
guest. And, and what Basho is trying to do is renew the tradition, to renew poetry itself. And one of the things he does is say, no, I'm not going to put Yamabuki. I'm going to put Furuikeya, an old pond. And that's why in my translation, I try to get across that, that playing with tradition, that breaking of convention, that renewal of tradition he's trying to, to achieve in the, in the poem. So he, I would ch- translate it as an olden pond now. So Furuike, ya, ya can, can be there or now, you know. He saw, it, it also, because it, it gave rise to a whole contest of frog poems. Eh? There was like the frog contest kind of, kind of, kind of came out of this as well, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Well, the, another thing we, we, we were talking about the idea of poetry as communal, but another thing was it was competitive. The, the Awase was a poetry competition. And one of the drudgery, one of the parts of the poet, poet's life that Basho didn't like was judging competitions. So uh, that was part of his function as a haikaishi as well. Uh, and yes, there was uh, the frog contest shortly after the poem was, was written and there was... Uh, Session, but of course we have to remember that this was this was a kind of humorous too. It wasn't po-faced, you know. These these were, these were enjoyable occasions. And another aspect of Basho that I wanted to get across was is the humor, how how witty the poems are, how playful they are, how full of puns they are, you know. Particularly the earlier work. That comes across. I, th- I think that no, that very much comes across, and and it brings me on to actually what I wanted to talk about next, which was the you know the translation, your translation. I mean, I was wondering, you know, if you could say something about your own approach to it. I mean, obviously, because like Basho has been translated many times, but you say yours is the first translation to adhere strictly to form. So kind of maybe we could talk about that aspect first. Well, can you so can you can you explain sort of what what that um, adherence to form or the strict adherence to form? Entails. The way we describe the, the haiku is five, seven, five syllables. But of course, in Japanese, they're not, they're not quite syllables. Um, they're called, technically speaking, uh, the, the more. And in Japanese, each unit is called an on, on, which just means sound, sound. So it's broken down into sound. So there's no real equivalent between an on and a syllable. But I accepted the English syllable as a near equivalent. And I tried to follow 575. But the other thing to remember is that Basho didn't always follow 575. Some of the, sometimes there are 10 syllables or 10 on to a line. And the other thing to remember is that there isn't three lines. It's one line in Japanese. So I accepted, I accepted the three-line tradition in English for, for, for good and ill, because you can achieve a lot with line. Because I have seen, I have seen translations of, of haiku that, that adhere to the one line. In fact, have a single have a single line in English. Hiroaki Sato does that. Uh, he has a single line. I, so I accepted the three line form and I, and wanted to get across the way that Basho plays across the single line in Japanese, where you can have a great deal of ambiguity within that one line. Where where what to place a modifier with, for example, you know. So I tried to get across some of that. And I also tried to get across the kireji, the cutting word. That's another famous thing about haiku. It's often considered, it's about juxtaposition. And this, I think Ezra Pound has a lot to answer for when it comes to this. The idea that a haiku is a juxtaposition of, juxtaposition of two elements. That's not always the case either. It can be the case. And later on, it does become perhaps more fully the case, but it's not always the case. As you were talking about that cutting word, and, and, and that's often represented by dashes in other translations, and you were, you were saying you were trying to find a way to represent the tension in the original, if I've understood that right, to enable the sense that constraint had been overcome. Uh, you're paraphrasing Seamus Heaney there. I think that's all. That, that's for my, my, for my own sense of what a poem does. I needed some, some, 
some sense of achievement, my own in English. I, I when people were asking me, you know, why did I do it and all that, I mean, I wanted, I wanted to to improve my English, you know, <laughs> that it, having this, having this, having this uh, formal constraint, you have to dig deeper, you know, digger into the, dig deeper into the the word hoard, you know. I, I, my intuition was really that Basho could not be so very different from any great poet in any language, so that he, he wasn't a philosopher, that he wasn't offering propositions about the world, which just happened to be in poem form. And after coming to know the work, uh, I wanted to show that first and foremost he was a poet, that and concerned with with what all poets are concerned with, which was what like Jeffrey Hill calls writing into the language. Um, when I when I was trying to get to grips with with the the poems, I, I tried to imagine what it was like before the poems happened, what might have motivated them in terms of the language in which they were written. Um, by which I mean the, the kinds of things that they were doing with the language. Uh, why, for instance, Basho chose one word rather than another, his, his choice of a dialect word in one poem or a word, for the classical lex for a word from the classical lex lexicon in another, you know, uh, what he was doing with sound and rhythm. And I was trying, at least in my own head, to get back to the impulse that motivated each poem. Uh, I wanted my version to have kind of a similar uh, ontological necessity, I for want of a better phrase, you know. I wanted to re-experience the, the restrictions first encountered by Basho himself and attend to what he kind of learned from them, you know. 85. Winter rain. The scudding of clouds. A dog running and pissing. A passing shower. I love that pissing dog. <laughs> Everyone does. <laughs> 518. From Narugo Onsen, we wanted to enter the province of Dewa through Shitomai Barrier. Few travellers come along this road, so the border guards were suspicious and interrogated us at length before they finally allowed us to pass. As the sun set, we reached the summit of a large mountain and saw a border guard's house where we asked for a night's lodging. Heavy rain and wind for the next three days confined us to this dismal place. The fleas and the lice and a horse having a pee at my pillow side. 257. At the end of the fourth month, I arrived back at my hut and recuperated from my long journey. From my summer robes, I still haven't quite done with picking out the hoppers. 135. The pleasures of spring at Wayno. Tipsy from the blossoms, the howry-wearing woman sporting a curved sword. 138. Cherry blossoms in full bloom, a hippity-hoppity monk, a wife all flirty. You say you're not a scholar of classical Japanese, but you, you are a poet and a scholar of poetry, and you've written a book on Thomas Kinsella. You write about contemporary poetry from these islands, and you've translated the likes of Dante, Mondale and Ungaretti. I mean, that experience both as a writer about poetry, translator and poet, must have helped a bit in, in doing these translations. Uh, that really helped uh, in terms of increasing vocabulary when you're trying to, to trying to fill in those lines. You know, you really have to dig into the word hard with him. So I, I felt in some ways through that experience e equipped to take on the, the, the job, you know, to, to take on the challenge of Basho. Um, the, the thing with Basho, of course, you're, you're working within a, a much smaller, on a much smaller canvas. So every every single item counts, you know, and every single uh, um, 
every single syllable counts. And I remember having a conversation recently with a friend of mine, Tim Harris, who who said that he he also translates Japanese. And one of his his findings was that he hates the English definite article, an indefinite article. And I understood. I understand how he feels. You know, another another thing is you know things like there is, there are, become become so so dead in in the context of a haiku. You know, so you're you're. you're I, I found it. I found it, however, a wonderful experience in trying to find solutions to those problems. And uh, elated when when I did actually find a solution that that worked worked. You know, I mean, the first thing to strike the reader, I mean, apart from, I mean, I struck me anyway. Apart from the translations, are the extensive notes that come after. I mean, this is really a scholarly work, and so it's not just the haiku. I mean, it's it's you know, you get all of these extensive notes. Uh, and they really are extraordinary. Sometimes the notes are substantially longer than the than, than the poems. And we also get Basho's own head notes, which are often fascinating and, and throw great light on the poems. And you read some of those for us um, uh, as, as as well. Could you say anything about about that those two things, that kind of scholarly sort of elucidation that you have, and also his own kind of head notes and how they fit into the in, into the poems. I think some of some of the poems are just not available to us without without context, some sense of what what uh, what was going on around them, you know. So I started off by just giving a few notes to a few poems, and then I said, "No, I have to I have to go the full full hog with this one, and I need more." And it, it was also for myself it, it, to help me understand the poems. There was one there's one poem the the uh, box for a koto poem that that I, I read. Which I I really couldn't understand, um, and I could only understand it when I found out that the setting of it was uh, in Omondori, which is the was the entrance to the red light district, the Yoshiwara district in Edo, so that I could see that the poem the poem is actually a seventeen syllable novel about the 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 fate of this of this uh, of this woman, you know, and I, so the the note the notes certainly were were were. Um, for the, the public and in the book and all that, but they were also for me to, to understand the poems, to help me understand the poems. Uh, Basho's head notes are wonderful, you know, he, he they're his, they, they, he, they were included in the early editions of his work that were published. They often feature also in the the, the, the travelogues that, that, that uh, were published. The most famous, of course, is known as The Narrow Road to the Deep North, or Aku no Hosumichi in, in Japanese. Um, so they're in there, to um, he wrote small uh, prose pieces called haibun. Uh, so the the, the, the prose uh, elements are, are part of the Basho tradition. So I wasn't I wasn't adding them in. So uh, some of them are newly translated. Some of them have never been translated before. But I'm not, I'm not adding them in. Can you t- talk to us about? I mean, two things. I mean, I mean, queer Basho, right? Because I mentioned in the introduction. You know Basho's poems of erotic male love, and it's not necessarily a thing that readers are um, familiar with. I mean, can you, can you say something about that side of his work? In a way, I suppose it's a kind of hidden side of him. I mean, how is homosexuality view, how is homosexuality viewed in seventeenth-century Japan? It's a complicated subject, of course. But he writes, um, and I quoted in the introduction that at one point in my life I was. Um, attracted to the ways of it's called nanshoku, male love, 
And in uh, some of the earlier poems, we see this. Um, but throughout the poems, it's still there. Near the, near the very end, um, you know, it's not him taking part, of course. It's, he's noting things, and it's a kind of social portrait. He, he writes of the moon's clarity escorting a catamite, afraid of foxes. So throughout, there's a noting of, 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 um, of male and male love. But it wasn't condemned in 17th century Japan. It, it wasn't an identity in the way that we think of it now. Uh, it was something somebody did. It wasn't what somebody was. And there's no sense of himself feeling conflicted over this. That's interesting. And another aspect is, is um, there's one poem, I think it's um, poem number 366, but it's dedicated to Sonoma, who is regarded as Basho's most accomplished female disciple. And I suppose we often think of the haiku poetry of this period as primarily a male tradition. But I'm interested in what, like, what role did women play? Were there many women poets? No, there weren't. Um, there's Ichiyu's wife, yeah. Beyond the curtain, beyond the deep inner room, a north wing, Ume. Yeah. Um, the most famous uh, female poet of the Japanese tradition is Ono no Komachi. She's one of the seven immortals of the Japanese tradition. Mm. But really, it's not till the 20th century that we have a, a larger female tradition in in. Japanese poetry, so Yosuno Akiko, for example, uh, up until more recent times, uh, Ibaragi Noriko, for example. Um, at the time, I, I, I really wouldn't have enough knowledge to know uh, if there are figures that have been ignored by the tradition. Uh, there, it, it seems to have meant to be an ent- almost entirely male world. We we know about Bashar. We think we know about him. I mean, he as, you know he's one of the most translated poets in the world, probably. But I get a sense. I get a sense from from your work that the Bashar that we know is only kind of part of the story. I mean, you say, for instance, that you know he's associated with brevity, restraint, zen austerity, not with linguistic brio or even fine excess. Yet the range and subtlety of Bashar's language is extraordinary. You say coming out of the world of haikai poetry and its conventions. He mingles high and low diction, elevated literary idioms with a keen ear for the demotic and so on. But you're really saying that there's an awful lot more to him, I suppose, and to his work than we generally think. I mean, if, 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 if you had to summarise, you know, what is it that he's, why should we, why should we read Basho? Basho has the qualities of any great poet, um, there's a huge range to the writing. I think we have a very limited view of what he writes about. He doesn't just write about the moon and flowers. He writes about uh, people. The poetry is peopled. He describes um, a range of emotions that we don't usually associate with them, the full range of human emotions. So one of the most moving poems to me is one he wrote as an older man, um, where he said, he says, in the seventh year of Genroku, while I was staying at Otsu, I received a letter from my older brother asking me to come home for the Bon Festival. The whole house of us with walking sticks and white hair visiting the grave. Um, that, that reminds me of, you know, Thomas Kinsler in some ways, you know, not, not merely because I translated it, but, but that's what it says in the, in the Japanese too. So there's, there's a range of human emotion in it. There's a range of human experience in it. Um, that, that we haven't really had a picture of in, in the, 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 the kind of more limited ver- n- numbers of poems that we've been allowed to see over the, over the years. 
I think with the full picture before us, he becomes a very, very different writer, uh, a more fully human writer, uh, a more fully complex character. Uh, the, the poetry becomes much more interesting, I think, uh, much more varied. And he becomes, I suppose, in some ways, much more contemporary. We can recognise him as being like ourselves. That was Andrew Fitzsimons talking about Basho, the complete haiku of Matsuo Basho, translated, annotated, and with an introduction by Andrew Fitzsimons. And it is published by the University of California Press. And all details of the book will be available, as usual, on the website at booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. All right, and now we come to the part of the programme dreaded and feared by some guests and eagerly anticipated by others, and that is the toaster challenge. And the idea is that we we ask our guests to talk to us for as long as it takes to make a nicely charred slice of toast about a book that has resonated with them in, in some way. Off you go, Andy. We'll, we, we, we will, and we count you in, and we say one, two, three. The toast is now in the toaster. Uh, I want to talk about Thomas Bernhard's Three Days. Uh, Thomas Bernhard was an Austrian writer born in 1931, and he died in 1989. He's a writer I discovered in 1991 in Books Upstairs when it was on College Green. Uh, I picked up his novel Correction, which had a superb blurb by George Steiner on it. I bought it, finished it that night, and have read anything I can find by him since then, in translation, of course. Uh, Frost, The Limeworks, Concrete. Wittgenstein's nephew, Woodcutters, which is also translated as Cutting Timber. The novels are usually first-person narratives spoken by someone perennially at the end of their tether, railing against the world and its ludicrous ways, uh, and, and his own ludicrous ways as well. The narrator is usually a he. If you've read Dostoevsky's notes from the underground, you'll recognise him immediately. Bernhard was a novelist, but also a prolific playwright. Famously, in his will, he forbade all productions of his work in Austria. Such was his antipathy to the cultural institutions of that state. Uh, Three Days is the most recent book of his that I have read, as it was only translated in 2018 by Laura Lingen, in a beautiful edition by Blast Books in New York. If you know his work, this book is like getting a peek behind the curtain at the mechanisms driving a, a stage performance. We see where the books come from, and you can see that it was also the generative text for his autobiographical work, Gathering Evidence, one of his best books, and uh, one of the most extraordinary I've ever read, actually, probably where I would recommend anyone to start. Um, it features one of the most extraordinary first days at school in all of literature. And uh, we get a glimpse of that first day in early form in, in this book, Three Days. Uh, Three Days is actually the text of a film made in 1970 by Ferry Radax. And I've just discovered that the film is actually available on YouTube now and with English subtitles. It features Bernhard on a bench under a tree in a garden in Hamburg, talking about his memories, his inclinations, his attitudes and his work, all of which seem mysterious and unexplainable to him. He says he writes out of resistances, that he loads storytellers, and that any sign of a story in his work he sets, out about, he sets about destroying it. He's a story destroyer rather than a storyteller, he says. Writing comes to him with difficulty, which is precisely why, he says, he chooses to do it. He trained as a musician, but stopped, for it all came too easily to him, he says. He also trained as an actor, and the book begins with an anecdote about learning lines for a play, that he, but he found that he could never get past the first line, 
which emerged in the line works in the story of Conrad, uh, the protagonist who can't get past the first line of a study he's been working on for 20 years. The contradiction in Bernhard, uh, in the man and his work, is the pleasure, excruciating pleasure to be found in such difficulty. And even in the contemplation of the at times horrifying bizarreness of reality. He's a wonderful writer, uh, gloomy, as he says himself, but hilarious within that gloom. He's not for everyone, uh, maybe, but I wish more people knew his work. Is the toast done? The toast is that's perfect. Yeah, that's that's the perfect that's a the perfect slice of toast, nicely nicely <laughs> cooked and and that was that was fascinating. And 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 Bernhard is is like as you're saying, it's like it's almost like the the anti anti writer's anti writer kind of and that and yeah. that and that notion yeah. of that loathing of Austria uh, is so sort of is is so striking, isn't it? And that comes through in all all of the work, loathing of writing and loathing of Austria, the two kind of. <laughs> characteristics. Thank you, very, thank you very much for that. That, that. that was that was a fascinating insight into Thomas Bernhard, and of course, thanks again to Andy for that fascinating account of Basho. We, I think, we've reached the end of our books for breakfast podcast this morning. I'm definitely rushing off to have more coffee, and I'm Enda Wiley, and I've Peter Sarah here with me. And Peter, would you like to tell everyone about the details of the podcast if they'd like to listen again? Well, you can subscribe at all the usual sources, Google and Apple and so on. And if you want to check out the notes that go along with this podcast, you can go to booksforbreakfast.buzzsprout.com. And yeah, so we'll be back again. We'll have the toast on. We'll have the kettle boiling. We will have more books to discuss. And we're looking forward to having you here. So goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.